hat and gloves every day to work. But not a three-foot-tall, felt, custom-fit Galactus hat. And green foam fist gloves that scream Hulk smash. Hulk smash! And then there's Adam Bernstein and Doug Bost. Two men who should have better things to do, but aren't doing them right now. These are two grown-ass men. Grown-ass men. With special guest grown-ass man, Danny Fingeroth. Well, we're back with uh, another episode uh, of Grown-Ass Men, and what's exciting today is that Adam and I both read a brand new book that just came out by writer and editor uh, at Marvel Comics for years, Danny Fingeroth. Yes, the amazing story of Stan Lee, A Marvelous Life. This is an excellent book. It's very thorough, and there's a <laughs> it's incredible uh, in-depth. It just came I, out from St. Martin's Press. It's a good uh, Christmas gift, Hanukkah gift. <laughs> um, and we're just, you know, it's just great that we're able to talk with, uh, with Danny himself today. Hello. Hi, Danny. Welcome Hi, to Danny. Grown Ass Men. I couldn't ask for a more elegant name for a, for a show to be on. <laughs> we're, we're, it's funny you say that because we're all about elegance here on Yeah, you know, I had a feeling. I, 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 I kind of got that impression. <laughs> so, uh, and we're talking about the book or my whole career or what? Um... Well, I would like to talk about both, really, but I, I definitely want to start talking about um, your book because Adam and I... We just both read both it. Both read it. It's we really a really great it. book, man. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Congratulations. And like when Stan died a year ago, I've been saying to Doug since that, I, like, we got to do a Stan Lee episode. We got to do a Stan episode. It's great to do it with you because, you know, you're probably the expert on Stan Lee at this point. Um, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, he was a complicated guy. So there are, you know, there are a lot of different aspects of, of him. And, and I'm sure there are a lot of stories you know, to be told. There's a spider, there's a dock, there's a torch, there's a rock, there's a playboy and there's the lizard, there's a surfer and there's the wizard. Now you get to know the man, who's the man, who's the man, now you get to know the you know a creative person as a writer he was a business person as a publisher and and uh, a person trying to make uh, deals in, in Hollywood he was a father he was a husband he was you know and 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 not everything he did not every decision he made pleased everybody who was affected by them you, you kind of paint a picture of a guy sometimes who's kind of selectively clueless as to the feelings of other creative people because he's he's kind of he's an optimist and he always wants to believe the he, he wants to believe the best version of every story even if he even if it's not necessarily true but but also you know when late in his later in his life when he's pushed to the wall he wants everybody to acknowledge what he did that his his input was so vital to create these characters when the when the chips are down he doesn't want anybody to forget what he did um, and, and there was no reason that he should let people forget that. But, it's, you know, when you work in collaboration, 
it can be confusing even to the people who are who are doing it. You look at the careers of of, of uh, Stan and of Kirby and of Ditko separately, and they all had you know rel- you know successes and failures, but on their own, I don't think any of them came up with anything that resonated as deeply with as many people as the those Marvel characters. I also like the idea that you have in your book about creativity that it's it, it seems kind of beside the point to attribute a percentage of the the work on one character to Kirby or or Stanley or or Steve Ditko because that's not the collaborative process it's not the creative process it's right. you know, it's it's so hard to define that creating anything is a much more complicated thing you know it's a lot more it's analogous a lot all i kept thinking when i'm reading the book is like you know, the analysis of uh, McCartney, you know, John Lennon and McCartney right. and their partnership and how when they were together, they did their most potent work, you know, as opposed to later on, even though they did a lot of amazing, incredible work after they split up. Oh, so that's a good analogy. Uh, and it's one I've used myself. But I think in some ways, there was part of Stan that was also George Martin. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, since it's not an exact analogy, kind of, I think Stan was the guy behind the glass, you know, sort of, let's try this, let's try that, oh, I know this guy who can help us do that. You know, because he had these multiple roles as as editor, art director, um, sometimes publisher, always, you know, distant relative of the owner, uh, writer, scripter, co-plotter, cheerleader, um, psychiatrist, policeman, good cop, bad cop, brothers, your sister, you know. Um, he played all this multiple series uh, of roles and that somehow, you know, love him, hate him, both at the same time, his collaborators and he came up with these stories that were, you know, that, that are still uh, powerful today. Even if all he did, and I don't think it's true, but even if all he did was quote unquote fill in the words in the balloons, those are some pretty powerful words he put in those balloons and some and some pretty distinct personalities he created for those characters. But I think you know, I think what he did was more complicated and and you know, subtler uh than that. You know, so I I think, you know, he was sort of part George Martin and Brian Epstein also, as well as well as being, you know, some analogy to Lennon and McCartney. It, 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 I, I mean, I know exactly what you're saying. Right. You know, then there are other issues of, of, you know, of who got paid what to do something, and then you're getting really into the weeds of what was standard payment in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, I mean, that's uh, kind of things that it, rock bands figured out in the 80s right. and 90s. You know, they were like, you know, U2 or R.E.M. I mean, they're not my favorite bands, but they figured out we're, no matter what happens, we're all sharing the royalties. And that's why they were able to continue for 25, 30 years. Right. Although, although I, would, I would imagine those bands probably, or at least their fans, probably still debate about who really did what and who contributed what to what songs and what albums. Oh, absolutely. I listened to um, R.E.M.'s first album. I think that's all Jack Kirby. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think it was Don Heck. I don't know. know, Don Don Heck. 
you know, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, and I've always mm-hmm. thought that they're that that sort of the leap from sort of Stanley's prose to Bob Dylan's lyrics is not that big a leap, and mm. you know, and when you're a teenager, but I, but I mean, I think the thing that people forget too is that superhero comics by by definition are about good guys and bad guys, and I think people who love superhero comics feel a need. I mean, I think, I think everyone does in general, but especially people who, who love superhero comics feel a need to divide the world into good guys and bad guys. Hmm, interesting so point. Yeah. So, so, so even though Marvel's whole lesson was, you know, there is a lot of uh, gray area, <laughs> you know, I think that people do tend to see, well, if there's, you know, if Kirby is a good guy, there, there has to be a bad, you know, if there's a Reed Richards, there has to be a Doctor Doom. And right. if people... People can't agree on, on which is which. When you look at books by Kirby alone, you know, I mean, I don't think I'm alone in saying this. It's not the same potency. Is like it's it, it, it's visually powerful, yes. but it's, it's much harder to relate to. You know, I mean, there are obviously there's a there's a you know a large school of people to whom it is as good or better but if the name of the game is appealing to a large um audience but also maintaining you know um integrity of story and characterization uh then yeah i agree with you i mean i think you know the the proof is in the pudding but i mean there is you know i mean sort of an interesting what if you know, a mind game to play is kind of, you know, what if Kirby had done those uh, fourth world characters, but Stan had been, if, if you know, if not the uh, writer, then, then just even just the editor, right. you know, I mean, because cause some of those stories are so, you know, I mean, they're still mining those, uh, those, those uh, Kirby's fourth world stories uh, decades later for, for, for new ideas for movies and TV as well as for other comics, but he he he, he put in so many new ideas um, with such frequency and such density that they almost neutralized each other. I think I think it, Stan certainly was able to, um, and maybe Kirby found it frustrating, but just you know, but to say to him, you know, don't don't give him everything at once. Just uh, you know, let's. Let's make let's work on this one I you know this, these one or two ideas, do some characterization and some romance and some soap opera and some um, yeah. interpersonal stuff. The other interesting thing about him is that although you know maybe Stan took more credit than he should in some cases, he also gave credit to everybody. He made all of the creators of the Marvel comics famous. He was the one who pioneered the idea that there were people behind these comics. Yes, and I, I agree. I, and I think he, yeah, it was an amazing thing. They, I mean, DC once in a while would, and, and, and in comics it had always been somebody signing their name in the corner, and uh, you know, although, although again, it's, you know, it, it was not of interest to most children, certainly. You know, there was this whole generation, the first generation of comics fandom with Roy Thomas and Jerry Bales, that to whom it was important who was doing the work. And so Stan played to them because I think he felt that was a potential audience. But I think I think um, part of the of the equation where uh, he was collaborator, but also 
uh, these people's uh, boss, you know? I mean, sort of, that was, they were freelancers and he had a staff job, even though a lot of his career, certainly the first 20 or 30 years, his main ambition was to get out of that job and go to you know go to Hollywood or go into into straight publishing or go into advertising. I love that. But that's I, one of my but, favorite things about Stan is that he seems to always want to get out of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I, I I think that when you do see like on social media the people who you know resent him even though they you know it's one thing for someone who works with him to resent him you know and and you know and, and from actual real experience to maybe have some reason to have ill will uh, but it's but it's another thing for somebody who was born you know 25 years after the characters are created so i think people tend to identify with kirby and ditko the way you would identify with your dad you know i mean that you know sort of if, if anybody ever did dirt to your father, which I think every every family has a story of some guy who really uh, did something terrible to their father at some point. I don't know. That seems like a common thing because I guess it happens to people. You work in the world, and somebody's going to be your boss, or somebody's going to betray you as a collaborator. Uh, you know, so everybody has a personal story they identify with, where like they have to see their father at some point come home angry or defeated or frustrated. And I think people hook into that part of the mythology of Stan and Jack and Steve. And the person you kind of want to identify with is that that image of Kirby as this victimized, exploited guy. And I, you know, I don't even think Jack necessarily bought into that, you know, but it, it's an easy shorthand for people to understand you know, my dad got screwed, and so I, I, I um, you know, by some guy with a fancy corporate title. So the person I'm going to sympathize with is Jack Kirby, not Stan Lee. You know, I, I think it becomes, I think it becomes that personal for some people. Um, sure, I, I hear what you're saying there. That's interesting. Hard, hard to believe that I wrote a book called Superman on the Couch, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the the reason that I was. Uh, able to get in touch with you was through my friend uh, Rich Dolan. Right. And um, his wife, Victoria, who I, I haven't had a chance to meet, but she is uh, Ken Bald's daughter. Right. And Ken Bald was a, a great artist. He, he worked uh, on Sunday comics mostly, right? Ken Bald worked in advertising mostly. Oh, okay. The only way you made a good living in general if you were a freelancer was to do an incredible volume of work. I think Ken went into syndicated strips, and he did the Dr. Kildare and a few other very popular strips. And then eventually, I think he went into advertising because he, he, he thought that his talent could be best uh, monetized. You know, he must have been, you know, I'm assuming he enjoyed the advertising work too. You know, I guess it probably varied from day to day, but... Yeah, like, I mean, he actually achieved that thing that Stan talked about wanting to do, which was to be an advertising guy. It seems like they would kind of double date, and that, you know, sort of brings me back around to asking about Joan, because it seems like in your book, you know, the moment when Stan first meets Joan, it's kind of like a, you know, a, a face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot kind of moment, like when he um, is introduced to her. You know, as a biographer... I was really eager to find some juicy tidbits about you no know, problems in their marriage, and you know, at the at the very least, you think, well, Stan, 
you know, especially in the 70s, he's like barnstorming to all these colleges, you know, during like the height of the sexual revolution. And, you know, you hear about other cartoonists, um, you know, most famously, uh, maybe because he was very clumsy at it, was um, was Al Cap, you know. And, and I could not find any credible story like that about Stan, uh, which, which was interesting, you know, because, I mean, uh, again, he, he lived either in New York or in Hollywood, which, you know, I don't think people in either place would have been scandalized if he had, you know, one or many affairs. And, I mean, I didn't, I didn't hire a private detective, but my impression was that, you know, that, that he really liked her and they, that, you know, they liked each other, they enjoyed each other's company, they were almost... People, uh, particularly uh, Victoria Dolan, uh, you know, in, in the book reminisces for me about kind of remembering them as almost a a, um, a vaudeville act, the way they would, you know, like kind of try to entertain people either who came to their house or when they went to visit other people's houses, you know. So they were they were fun company to be around, and you know, and and even if you take with a grain of salt the idea that the whole that Marvel originated because Jones said to Stan, why don't you do a comic? the way you always wanted to do it. But I mean, you know, at some point she, you know, uh, said, you know, he got the idea. Well, maybe I can do, you know, something different, something that's got a little more, you know, literary ambition to it. You know, my guess is that that might be the distillation of like a hundred different conversations right. where, yeah. where, where, you know, you can imagine a scenario, you know, a guy comes home and goes, oh, what a... What a terrible day at the office I had. I'm sick of this. And she's like, stop complaining already. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Although that wasn't really her accent. She had a British accent. <laughs> I, gave, I gave her like a Jewish suburban accent. Stop complaining already. <laughs> How did you meet Stan? You know, I get asked that a lot, and I shouldn't make up some story, because I have no idea. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I came to work at Marvel in 1977. I was hired to be the assistant to Stan's brother, Larry Lieber, who at that point was running the British department. Mm-hmm. So Larry, so I worked, with, I worked you know, uh, for Stan's family. <laughs> you know, I was working with Larry, who's still one of my closest friends. Um, you know, I just had lunch with him. Uh, literally yesterday, and uh, well, Larry just turned 88 uh, on Saturday, wow, and wow. he's and he's still he just stopped drawing the Spider-Man strip, but now he's um, devoting himself to writing novels. Oh, so great. Um, you know he's very active. Anyway, so somewhere in there, I must have met Stan. You know, and and I remember a lot of different individual stories, but that one moment, you know, I just have to make something up. That's what Stan would do. I gotta, you know, I gotta make up something. Like, you know, I was at the refrigerator in Marvel, and I opened the door, and there's this horrible smell of Limburger cheese. And I go, what lunatic left this Limburger cheese in here over the uh, Christmas vacation? And I turn around, and I look up, and I see him there standing, and he goes, oh, that's where I left that Limburger cheese. All right, that's my story from now on. You, you heard it here first, guys. Yeah, good. Exclusive. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I, I love that your friendship is really what kind of drives this book like you have this insider relationship with him that I feel like you were probably able to get 
interviews that other people weren't able to get, other you know, access that other people weren't able to get to. Uh, you know, Stan, you know, as I said, he's, he's, a, he's, you know, he's been interviewed a million times, right? I mean, in some ways, for the last 30 or 40 years, that was, you know, one of his main jobs, was being the voice and face of Marvel uh, or of Stanley Media or of Pow Entertainment uh, and eventually of the comics, of the entire comic book industry. So, I mean, he was... He was really good at being interviewed, and I, what I found was he would often couch very frank, revealing things in between, like selling you stuff. <laughs> like he'd say these really commercial things, and oh, you know, go watch this movie, buy this comic, uh, you know, download this webcast. Oh, by the way, here's this incredible revelatory thing about my father. <laughs> Right. You know, but he'd say it in the same tone of voice that he'd be trying to sell you something. So it could go. I think it did go right by a lot of people. But I'd be listening, you know, or maybe research either in person or just you know research something. And go, holy cow! <laughs> you know, in between trying to sell me shit, he just said this really personal, revealing thing, tearing the curtain away. And when it came time to interview him for the book, the book is unauthorized. For a certain amount of time, I several years, I tried to get him to do an authorized one, and he just didn't want to do it. He was very kind. He said to me, uh, I wanted anybody to do it, Danny, it will be you, but I don't want anybody to do it. Now, did he say that to five other people that day? I don't know, but, but you know, it was very nice of him to at least say that. Even after years of knowing me, you know, to some degree, I think we got to know each other um, better, and he got to trust me, and I got to know... There's no point in going to Stan and saying, so what really happened with you and Kirby? I mean, what's he going to say, you know? But I was able to find out things about his life, about his parents, about his relationship with Larry, his relationships with, with Martin Goodman, his relationship with Joan, and you know, all these kind of things, both, you know, both kind of, you know, profound and trivial, you know, that, that, may, that would make up a person. I love that story that you tell in the book about you know, somebody, I can't remember if it was you or somebody else recounting that, you know, after Stan had a meeting with Steve Ditko, he asked, hey, do you remember why Steve Ditko left in the first place? Like, I think those kinds of things are, are really interesting. And, you know, so if you did ask him, hey, whatever happened, he wouldn't necessarily give you the answer that you think. You know, exactly. I mean, I think there's... Again, everybody talks about these things as if they were strictly dollars and cents or, 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 you know, or two artisans working together. What I think people tend to forget is that relationships change over time. They're different, you know. In Joe Simon's memoir, you know, his My Life in Comics, which is a book I recommend, by the way. Not, you know, he writes about um, when Stan was his and Kirby's assistant, you know, uh, in 1941. And, uh, you know, they were dissatisfied. You know, they felt Martin Goodman was, was reneging on a, on a promise uh, of royalties uh, on Captain America that he'd made. And so they were moonlighting for D.C. And Stan followed them to this secret studio they had where they'd go at lunch. And they swore him to secrecy that, they, that he would never tell. But, so, you know, fairly soon, as was inevitable in a gossip-driven business like comics, Goodman found out and... and you know, fire, you know, fired them. Um, and Kirby, according to Joe Simon, always believed that Stan had ratted them out and had hated him 
ever you know ever since then. Well, it's not it's not clear that Stan really did that. You know, the business is full of people who want to know each other's business and want to curry favor or just want to show that they know something somebody else doesn't. Plus, within a couple of months, DC was like putting out covers saying Simon and Kirby are here. You know, but. I, I asked, um, I think I asked Roy, actually. Uh, I'm not sure if it's in the book, but at one point I said, was that, do you think Kirby really hated Stan Literally, You know, because it seemed to me that they were sometimes friendly, if not actual friends. And Roy's, you know, Roy's opinion was much more complicated than that. And I, and I think it was true. I think those guys, especially in the very beginning of, of, of the modern Marvel era, in, you know, in, in, in 58, 59, 60, 61, I think they sort of had this almost camaraderie of guys, you know, fighting in the trenches together, not to romanticize it too much, but especially in the case of Ditko. And, um, uh, you know, it, it feels to me, if you read Ditko's writing, in you know, over the years, and Ditko wrote a lot of very dense, sort of hard to understand stuff um, based in, in some way on his understanding of Ayn Rand philosophy with his own... Um, his own uh, interpretation of it. But it reads to me more like someone who felt let down by a friend than someone who was making necessarily sociological or political decisions or even financial decisions. And, and I think Stan felt that way too. Whatever happened between them, you know, in a way even more so than with Kirby, because I think with Kirby, the age difference was great and Kirby had been his boss and you know, although I think there are there were times where they they might have felt closer to it, but I think I think Ditko, he felt more let down by a friend than necessarily betrayed in any kind of business manner. I'm sure that was there too, but you know, and I think Stan felt that Stan loved working with Ditko. You know, they had that uh, amazing fantasy, even though the last issue had Spider-Man. You know, the other issues. Um, sort of Stan made that the comic that he and Ditko would do all the stories together, the three or four short stories in each issue, and the motto was the magazine that respects your intelligence. I think Ditko, too, enjoyed the working process with Stan. And then somewhere in there, Ditko felt let down by a friend as much as anything. And so did Stan. So when Stan would say to people, you know, who weren't even, you know, who were maybe in, you know, eighth grade at the time or something, certainly not working at Marvel. You know what, Ditko left. I mean, he, I think it was sincere, you know, and maybe it was a self-preservation thing. Maybe he just couldn't allow himself to, to, to know these things. Or one thing I would see Stan do, and I'm not the only one, I mean, certainly, is that he would, somebody would tell him, what really happened, you know, uh, in something that he didn't remember uh, that closely. And he would not, he wouldn't deny it. He'd go, oh, you know, you're right. That I think that's how it happened. That's what happened. Um, that's what I'm going to say from now on. And then he'd see him interviewed again, and he'd go on autopilot, and he'd tell the old story again, which I think is what people tend to do. And let's say, you know, a lot of the judgment of Stan in the past 10 or 15 years his judgment of a of a guy in his mid and late eighties and his, and his mid and his mid nineties, which he was very high functioning, obviously, and 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 had a very active life, but he was still a guy in his eighties and nineties, you know, with a lot of what comes with that territory. What was the first comic you ever bought? Do you remember that? You know, again, that's something I should make up. Uh, I mean, the, the, uh, you know, um, 
Well, what did you have in your house when you were a kid? Like, what comics did you, did you read comics when you were a kid? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, I was obsessed with them. Yeah. Where'd you buy them? In New York, you could buy comics at newsstands and candy stores. That's why. Yeah, I I, when I started, we, we both, I'm 55. We both. Okay, all right. So you're, okay. So, um, yeah, we're in the same ballpark. Where'd you, where'd you grow up? Um, I'm originally from what they call uh, Bath Beach, Brooklyn, you know, right by uh-huh. the bridge. Right, right. So okay, lived- so yeah, so you had the same thing. Candy stores, drug stores, and, and newsstands. Yep. And, and, and not everybody had everything. Um, first comic I think I remember reading is uh, an issue of some kind of Popeye the Sailor comic. I was a big fan of the Popeye cartoons. And then my cousin Steve, uh, who I'm going to give a shout out to, you know, he gave me... I think, uh, you know, a lot of, com- you know, like a stack of comics, because you know, he was three or four, you know, maybe five, five or seven years older than me. So what I remember most is like an adventure comics with Superboy in it. Maybe the, maybe the one where he's on the cover and he's lost his powers and he's inside of like a box kite and his father is trying to help him regain his flying powers and his <laughs> confidence. Um, and then the Marvels came out. In my first, Mar- my first Marvel comic that I knowingly bought as a Marvel comic was Fantastic Four number four, The Return of the Submariner. Ah. And and it's like a, you know, in my school there were like maybe four kids into comics, and one of them said to me, "This new thing called the Fantastic Four. So I went. Uh, the two places I would have gone to were either Teddy's newsstand on 86 in Lexington, or sometimes um, I think because they put the comics out like eight minutes earlier. You know, I would go to uh, Farrell's newsstand on, on Lexington and 88th in Manhattan. And then in my kid budget, whatever your budget is when you're like 10 or 11, you go, well, I'm spending close to $2 a week on comics. That's crazy, you know. <laughs> so I kind of made this uh, abrupt decision that I wasn't going to buy DC anymore and just buy the Marvels. You know, I just found it so exciting just reading comic books. It's the combination of words and pictures and colors and then when Marvel came along and Stan figured out that way to relate to the readers with the letters, that the voice, and I talk about this in the book, you know, that the, that the voice that is ballyhooing on the cover is the same voice that, you know, introduces the stories and, and writes the footnotes. And, you know, in the days before there was like a single bullpen bulletins page, every comic had these letters pages and then every comic would have a special announcement section and and the next issue section and even though it was all designed to get you to buy stuff it also was designed to really make you bond with with the editor who wasn't even calling himself stan sometimes the person answering those letters would refer to stan in the third person you know which was part of that whole myth of the marvel bullpen which had existed in the in the 40s, but by the by the you know by the 60s certainly didn't. Almost all the free or almost everybody was a freelancer, except you know office support staff and Stan. And it paid off. It wasn't just oh yeah, this is a cool story. It's like right. I mean, to go back to that Submariner story, right? I was eight years old or nine years old. I'd never heard of the Submariner. Um, so the fact that he was coming back shouldn't have meant anything to me, and yet it was really important to me that the Submariner was coming back, as if I'd been waiting for it my entire life. I love the book, and I just want to congratulate you. I mean, the book kind of does what biographies should do. You know, you get the full sense of a person. You get a real portrait of somebody by the time you're finished with the book. So congratulations. It's really 
a marvelous read, and <laughs> thank you so much for talking to us today. Well, well thank you, guys. And okay. if, you, if you had a theme song, what would it sound like? Um, I guess it would be, uh, you know, not particularly original. It would probably be the James Bond theme. That's a pretty great theme. You know? Okay. Good to know. <laughs> you looking for something to put on a show? Well, I write all original music for the show. Ah, okay. I'm a, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan, including the modern stuff. So if you, if you, if you want to write something that has a Dylan sound to it, you know, I'm going to see him. I restrain myself. He's doing, you know, he's doing a 10 nights of the beacon. I'm only going to two shows. You know? Okay. All right. <laughs> you know. Well, you know, I'm a Dylan fanatic. Uh, you know, the, the Dylan James Bond, uh, crossover can easily be done. Danny Fingerar, do you come from a separate cloth? Maybe you sipped a special broth. You know you found the Fantastic Four to be magic. Tonight read every Spider-Man would certainly be tragic. You like a gypsy moth Into the Marvel bullpen you went forth And everybody knows of course You called Stan Lee your boss Hey Danny Fingeroff Sounds good. All right, gentlemen. Fantastic. Thanks, Dan, Danny Fingeroff, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.